And they all lived happily ever after. You know, as a father of two young daughters, that is a refrain that I have had to see lived out in more stories than I ever anticipated in my life. Uh, Snow White, Cinderella, Aurora, Ariel, Belle, Jasmine, Pocahontas, who doesn't really get a happily ever after, but we don't have time to get into that. Milan, Tiana, Rapunzel, Merida, they all get their happily ever after. You know, a kiss to awaken from eternal sleep, a slipper that replaces poverty with riches, uh, trading your fin for a feet, whatever. Happily ever after. What about Ruth? Does Ruth get a happily ever after? If you are just joining us this morning, we've been working our way through the book of Ruth. It's a book in the Old Testament. And this story revolves around three characters, Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz. And it's a story about loss and suffering and grief and the way that God's unfailing love is mysteriously at work, even when we can't see it. But if we're not sure how God is at work, Ruth shows us again and again that we can know God's love enacted and demonstrated through the love people show us. And if we only brush the surface of Ruth then, we might think this is a story like most fairy tales where everything works out in the end. And in some sense, this is true. There is a really happy ending for Naomi and Ruth and even Boaz. But we need to be careful not to reduce Ruth down to merely happily ever after. Because what about Elimelech, Malon, and Kilion? How do their deaths square away with happily ever after? What about all the unnamed people who didn't make it through the famine of chapter one? What about the countless people throughout history, even throughout our own community, who experience loss and suffering and grief, and they don't get the pretty bow that ties up everything nicely in the end? You see, faith is not a promise that everything in this life will resolve the way that we would hope. But as the story of Ruth concludes, we'll see something much more beautiful than happily ever after is indeed at work in this story. J.R.R. Tolkien, he's most well known for writing Lord of the Rings uh, and for inventing words like middle Earth, or worlds like Middle Earth and creatures like hobbits and hairy feet. Uh, but he also invented words. And one of his most well-known words is eucatastrophe. Say that with me. Eucatastrophe, it's a tricky one. He took the word catastrophe and added the Greek uh, prefix eu, which means good catastrophe. And so you see this all over his writings. Everything falls apart. Things go as bad as they possibly could. There is suffering and loss and grief and the main characters do not escape unscathed. But then there's always a surprising and sudden turn of events that ensures that the lead character does not meet some terrible, impending, and very plausible and probable doom. It's a eucatastrophe. Good comes out of the catastrophe. You see, Ruth is not a romantic comedy. It's not a fairy tale. If we only had the first chapter of this book, we would say this is a catastrophe. This is a tragedy. But as we see the book resolve, we discover that Ruth truly is a eucatastrophe. It is a good catastrophe. And to see this, I just want to look at two things in the last chapter, the negotiation and the surprise. So if you have a Bible, open it up to the book of Ruth. Uh, it's, we're going to be in the fourth chapter. Everything will be on the screen behind me. Uh, and uh, if you don't own a Bible, take one of our gray Bibles home. We'd love for you to have that. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, 
The redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, bide in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Now to make sense of this scene and this negotiation that's happening between Boaz and another redeemer, we must remember the evening before. Naomi had sent Ruth, her daughter-in-law, to meet with Boaz in secret. And in a risky and scandalous and courageous and countercultural act, Ruth asks Boaz to marry her. It defied every custom of that time. And on top of it, Ruth compels Boaz to act as a redeemer. Essentially, she says to Boaz, Naomi and I, we come as a package, one and the same. And I want you to take on the social and moral responsibility of changing what has happened to us, of taking us out of our state of poverty and bringing us back into a state of flourishing and life by purchasing and restoring Naomi's land. In Ruth, Boaz met his equal. Her strength and her boldness drew out Boaz's strength and boldness. And even though he was not actually obligated to do anything, Hesed compelled him forward. As we've been saying, hesed is a Hebrew word that's best translated as unfailing love. And throughout Ruth, time and time again, we see that people made in the image of God carry this great invitation of knowing the unfailing love of God and demonstrating that love to those around him. That's what it means to be made in the image of God. And this is what Boaz plans to do. Here's a great opportunity for me to demonstrate the unfailing love of God in a tangible and practical way. But there was a hiccup. Someone else was ahead of Boaz in the line of redeemers. But all the same, Boaz pledged himself to help Ruth under no obligation, simply driven by his said. As Boaz initiates these negotiations, sitting down with this other redeemer, we see he has the brilliance of Gary Kasparov. Gary Kasparov, the man whose name is synonymous with chess, according to Chess Master 2000, no one? Gary Kasparov? Anyways, Boaz, I thought that'd be a lot funnier. It wasn't. <laughs> Boaz is calculated. He has anticipated the other Redeemer's moves in advance, and he knows how he's going to respond so that he can get the results that he wants. And since we're not given a name for this other Redeemer, the commentaries uh, like to call him Mr. No-Name, which is like such a scholarly joke, Mr. No-Name, so funny. Instead, we're going to call him Chad. Uh, so Boaz, he makes his first move. He presents Chad this golden opportunity, redeem Naomi's land. Back then, it was very difficult to acquire more land because land was kept within the family. And on top of that, it was very difficult to acquire more land that didn't already have an inheritor attached to it. In other words, this land would eventually go to someone else down the line. But Naomi is a widow and she has no sons 
and no grandchildren. And so essentially, Chad is given a golden opportunity. Here is land with no strings attached, no inheritors coming. But it's easy to miss something here. Up until this point, Chad has done nothing to redeem the land. He was simply biding time. Once Naomi died, the land would naturally transfer to his estate. And so it turns out Chad was playing the long game. You know, he shirked off any responsibility to care for Naomi in her widowhood. And there was no law compelling him to do so. So technically, he wasn't doing anything wrong. But he missed the spirit of what it meant to be a family's redeemer. It was never just about the land, although it involved land. It was about restoring life to the people who needed that land. But rather than care for Naomi, Chad would rather wait. Rather than risk, he played it safe. Rather than sacrifice for Naomi, Chad would prefer only to gain. Now, it makes sense on paper, doesn't it? But it stops short of Hesed. And how often do we do that? We settle for not doing anything wrong, but we stop short of the risky and sacrificial love that we might be invited to show in that opportunity. We do the radical bare minimum rather than inconveniencing ourselves by serving the needs of those around us. Our lives might look good on paper. We might not be breaking any laws, but we stop a long way from showing the radical love of a said. Chad, he's coasting to an easy inheritance, but then here comes Boaz. And Boaz was well known throughout the city. He had a reputation as someone as being a faith-filled, righteous man, someone with good character, and he was known for this. And so in this public setting, Boaz now puts pressure on Chad. He says, Chad, I want you to act now rather than later. Because if Chad doesn't, Boaz wants to step up and buy the land. Now, if this happened in private, Chad probably could have poked holes in Boaz's argument because Boaz actually doesn't have a strong legal case. But it's not in private. It's in public. And Chad wants to save face. And yet, it's still a winning scenario for Chad. Land without an inheritor. So Chad quickly says, I'll redeem it. You know, it might cost more than initially planned. He might have to pour out some of his resources to get the land and restore it now. But he and his family, in the long run, will still come out on top. See, Boaz, he's called Chad upward. He's called Chad to move beyond the, the letter of the law to the spirit of the law. He's called Chad to move beyond just the generic definition of a redeemer and get to the heart of what it means to embody that role, to see that its description that they had in their laws was just a sketch, not the full obligation. Boaz calls Chad upward and Chad steps up. And it looks good, because now Chad has more land, and he looks good in public. It's a win-win for Chad. But unwittingly, Chad made the exact move Boaz anticipated. And so Boaz makes his next move. Look at verses 5 and 6. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. 
So why the sudden change of heart, Chad? And this is where things get a little complicated. Chad has gained land and he looks good while doing it because it looks like he's embraced said, It looks like he's embraced this unfailing love of God that drives you to take risks and make sacrifices. It looks like he's doing more than what's required of him. He looks good. But now Boaz surprises him. There is an altogether different law in ancient Israel that stated if your brother died, you were to marry his widow. You were obligated to marry your brother's widow. I know that sounds strange for us to get today and we're glad it's not law anymore, but it was a way of protecting women in the ancient world who had no rights and no privileges in society. This was actually a law to make sure women weren't neglected and they were cared for. So essentially, Boaz says, well, what about this law, Chad? It doesn't directly apply, not even close, but what about the spirit of it? You see, Chad had just agreed to step up and help Naomi, even though he wasn't obligated to. And now Boaz is saying, well, why not step up for Ruth? After all, the town was a talk about Ruth and everything she was doing. Everyone in Bethlehem was talking about this radical love Ruth was showing to Naomi. Why wouldn't you step up and want to help this young woman of remarkable character, Chad? Once again, Boaz is putting social pressure on Chad to rise up to the level of Hesed, to show risky and sacrificial love. And even though, once again, he's not required to do any of it, Boaz calls him upward. And it's going to look bad if he says yes to Naomi and no to Ruth. Because it will show that gaining the land was actually what mattered to Chad and not living out Hesed. But if Chad says yes, as we see, he's going to risk his own inheritance. We don't quite understand this, so let me explain. Right out of the gate, if Chad is going to acquire Naomi's land... That's going to be an upfront financial cost. So he has to take some of his existing resources and acquire the land. But we also know Naomi and her family have been out of Israel for 10 plus years. So the land is overrun and fallow. So he's going to have to invest more resources to get the land even to the point of being useful to a crop. So when all is said and done, there is a high startup cost, but it's worth it if there's no inheritor, because in the long run, you've gained more land. But all of a sudden, Chad sees this would change if he married Ruth, because Ruth was formerly married to Malon, the son of Elimelech, the original owner of the land. And if Ruth has a child with Chad, that child automatically is the inheritor of Elimelech's land and all of the resources that Chad dumped into that land. And if that happens, then there's actually less left for Chad's sons. Do you see that? Because Chad would have taken his resources, dumped them into this land, he has less, and then that land is going to be taken over by any future inheritor. It's a losing proposition for his family all of a sudden. Redeeming the land is financially costly. And it takes a risk and it will take sacrifice. And the question that we have to ask is, is Hesed worth it? Is it worth demonstrating this type of love, even if it's this costly to yourself? And it's not for Chad. Chad says, this is too risky. This is too sacrificial. And that's why he says, take my right of redemption for yourself, or I cannot 
redeem it. You see, you can't fake hesed. Hesed is unfailing love, and it leads us to focus on the interests of others above and beyond our own interests alone. But Chad, like many of us, can't seem to get beyond himself. And it's because he's not actually dwelling in hesed. He was happy to look good and appear loving so long as it was a winning situation for him. So long as at the end of it all, he comes out on top. But the moment that demonstrating love would leave him with less, he's out. You see, when we understand that Hesed is God's love toward us, dwelling in us, working through us, you can't fake that. You can't muster that up. You need to receive in order to give. And Chad was trying to fake it, and it falls short. And as we understand what's actually involved then in redemption of the land, we should be shocked that anyone would accept this obligation of redemption, that anyone would be willing to give more than they're going to get back, to give away and give away at cost to oneself and even their own family. But this was Boaz's intention all along. He knew the great and high cost. And he was willing to bear that cost. And he found a way to help Chad confront that cost so that he would say no and hand it over to Boaz. And Boaz, he's willing to do this because we've seen throughout this story, he dwells in his said. He knows the unfailing love of God and he wants to demonstrate it to those around him. And through this well-calculated negotiation. Boaz demonstrates to us just how valuable people are to God. Naomi and Ruth, they're widows. They're insignificant in the ancient world. But Boaz, he's willing to spend a great deal of his own resources. He'll take the risk. He'll sacrifice in order to restore them to life. He shows us that no matter how insignificant or how far gone someone appears, they're never able to outrun the love of God. Do you hear that? You cannot outrun or outsin God's grace because God's love for you is unfailing. And God will pour out his riches. He will pour out everything he has to reach you. To seal the deal, Chad gives Boaz his sandal. Uh, and this is really a losing proposition for Chad. Not only is he missing out on the land, now he's down a shoe. Uh, and the text knows this is weird, which is why it explains to us this is just how things used to be done. Uh, but I think if that's how title deeds were done, we should bring that one back. I would feel a lot better about gaining a shoe in a negotiation. But after some shrewd negotiation, Boaz says, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Malon. Also, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. I just want to pause and briefly acknowledge how strange it is for our modern ears to hear a woman being treated like a bargaining chip in a negotiation or to see a woman treated like property to be bought and traded uh, as the language shows. 
We have to remember this is an ancient text taking place in a culture completely different than our own. In the ancient world, women had no ability to protect themselves. And so even though Boaz is buying Ruth, we don't want to miss what's actually taking place. This is an outworking of God's unfailing love within an old context. So the backdrop of the biblical setting is not always one and the same as the biblical message. What I mean is that we should emulate how Boaz is demonstrating unfailing love. It doesn't mean that the text is saying women should be bought and sold today. Do you understand? Because that's what this message is about. Hesed is driving Boaz to redeem Ruth at great cost to himself. And what we see is not intent on just buying her. His intent is to marry her and to love her and to care for her and to serve her and to lift her out of her poverty and restore her back into a place where she can flourish. And so Boaz declares what he will do. And everyone watching is amazed. And they speak these incredible blessings over Boaz and Naomi and Ruth. And the last is the most significant. They say, May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. What Boaz doesn't know, what the people speaking these words don't know, but what we know as readers, is that Ruth, when married to Malon, was unable to have children. She was barren for 10 years. And so there's tension here. It looks like there's going to be this great resolve. It looks like the land is going to be okay and like Naomi and Ruth are going to be okay. But we know there's something going on that needs to be resolved. And so having looked at the negotiation, let's look at the surprise. Look at verses 13 through 17. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her. And the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who's more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the woman of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. You can see why on the surface it just looks like Naomi and Ruth got a happily ever after. Ruth gets married. The Lord heals her. She has a child. Naomi has a grandchild. Everything works out in the end. And Ruth and Naomi are rejoicing over Obed. Bow on tops and the script, it's a lifetime movie, right? But this is actually a surprise ending. This is where we see that Ruth as a story is a eucatastrophe, not a rom-com, not a fairy tale. It's through loss and tragedy and pain and grief and suffering and the bleakness of a hopeless future. It's through these things that redemption has come to their life. God does not redeem the world outside of these things, but within these things. You see, the ending of Ruth is a lot like movies that are leading you in one direction and you think you've got it, figured it out, and, and then the last minute, it spins on you, right? 
And it's the surprise that happens was there under your nose all along. You just didn't know to look for it. I'm thinking of the usual suspects, so Sixth Sense or Fight Club, that sort of surprise. And that is the surprise taking place here in Ruth. Something has been under our nose all along and we've missed it. But the surprise isn't that Ruth was pretending to be someone she wasn't or that she was actually a ghost or just the split personality of Naomi. The surprise is that this is not about the redemption of Naomi and this is not about the redemption of Ruth. It's actually about Elimelech, Naomi's dead husband, who is buried by the third verse of the first chapter. Then his sons died and there was no one to carry on his name. And there was no worse fate in ancient Israel than this. The commentator Carolyn Custis James says, Elimelech was in the grasp of the jaws of annihilation. His name, his lineage was on the brink of extinction. And so it was Elimelech who was desperately in need of a redeemer. And the big question behind every scene, especially this scene is this, is there any hope for the dead? Is there any hope for the dead? From the catastrophe that consumed Elimelech and his sons, Ruth's child emerges. Obed will inherit Elimelech's land and he will perpetuate his name. This might sound underwhelming, right, to our modern ears, but in ancient Israel, this sort of reversal was practically resurrection. God has redeemed the dead. He's restored the name of Elimelech. He's going to be okay. Life has found a way through death. And this isn't to undermine the, the beauty that we see and the courage that we see in Naomi and Ruth and their need for redemption too, but we see how God used the strength and boldness and courage of these two women to redeem in a situation that everyone would have said was too far gone because death has the final say. But we see this good catastrophe take place. That through the suffering and grief and this loss, through the risk of losing your name altogether, God shows up in the very midst of it. And so this beautiful redemption that we see in the story of Ruth that took place in Bethlehem so long ago, it was only possible because of Hesed because of this risky and sacrificial love that Naomi and Ruth and Boaz show to each other. But what we're supposed to see is all these little acts of love, all these breathtaking acts of love are only ever a glimpse of God's said toward the world, of God's unfailing love toward us. God has not given up on us no matter how dark it may seem. Even if we live in the shadow of death, that's the message of Ruth. Because what was actually taking place through them was God's rescue plan for the royal lineage. That's the part we miss. If Elimelech was done, that was the end of the royal lineage that would lead to King David and ultimately to the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who will be born into the world all those years later. This is a catastrophe that God met us in the suffering and saved us through the suffering so that the world might be made whole again. During Advent, we remember this, don't we? Jesus Christ was born. 
that God decided to appear within the world and work through the world. He didn't stay outside the world. He didn't stay removed from the dangers. Instead, God took on the form of a baby in a manger. That's an incredible risk that God didn't just appear on a throne. He appears in diapers. Not invulnerable, but totally vulnerable. Fully dependent upon his family, his adopted family in some sense, Mary and Joseph, to show him said, to raise him up, the God of the universe. And he came into the world knowing that the manger would lead to a cross. He took great risk and he came knowing there would be great sacrifice, but he accepted this high cost of redemption for our sake. And so as we remember that Jesus Christ was born into Bethlehem, we're actually remembering God's said, God's unfailing love for all people, God's willingness to meet us in the tragedy and the loss and the suffering and the pain that can be life and to turn things around. Because Jesus came about to bring redemption of the dead. As we so often sing through this season, disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadow put to flight. So no matter how dark the world appears, no matter how great the suffering, how tragic the loss, nothing can quench the light of Christ's first appearing. Because in his presence, death flees. Because he is eternal life. And he came into the world to share that very life with us. And so Ruth shows us in 10,000 ways and more, ways that we could never know or fully see, God was mysteriously at work to bring about the redemption of the world. And that remains true even today. And so all we need to do is come to Jesus. Come to the light of the world. Come to the hope of redemption. Come to eternal life that causes death's shadow to flee. And Advent is this ancient invitation for us to begin praying, Come, Lord Jesus, come. Bring about that final redemption where suffering will cease, tears will be wiped away, and death will be no more.